0: Hey everybody, how's it going? We're a little early today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I am going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Hot Spirit Investigation team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. My screen stopped shaking. I got dry eye really bad and I'm just getting irritated with it. Anyway, we're 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can help you no matter where you are. The problem is California is this huge, huge state. And because of that, it may take us a while to get to you. And for a while, I mean one or two days, right? Maybe three days. In the meantime, if we can't get to you right away, we do have psychics on staff who can phone you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on in your house or place of business. And uh, that will allow us time to get out there because in most cases, they can calm down whatever is going on. All right? Okay. That being said, if you're watching from Facebook, and uh, you, a lot of you are tonight, Please be sure to hit that follow button if you haven't done so already. And you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Radio, Sacramento Sears, uh, Psychic Team. Uh, And, uh, yeah, and be sure to show us some love. Show me some happy faces, thumbs up, hearts. I'm looking for love love here. (laughs) And be sure to comment in the chat. Because what that does is that blows us up higher in Facebook's computer. You know, the the little electronic eye thing sees it. Puts us up higher in the FYP, which distributes us to more people. Okay? Same thing with YouTube. Um, You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. And that's the same process. Show us some love. If, If you're watching from YouTube, show us some love. Give us some hearts. You know, thumbs up, whatever. Show us some love. And, uh... Comment because that does put us up higher in YouTube's FYP. In fact, you put YouTube and Facebook work a lot really, really similar. You'd be surprised how that works. Also, over YouTube, if you haven't subscribed already, please do that. Uh, it doesn't cost you to subscribe, and I've got more than 800 videos sitting over there. All of this show, and you can imagine the amount of topics that that, that we have that I have started to put into separate folders, categories, so you guys can find them better, easier. If you like mysteries, we got a mystery topic. If you like Nancy Matts, we got a whole folder for her. If you like UFOs, and UAPs, we got that too. So um, it's very beneficial to join that YouTube. Down at the bottom of the screen right now, um, you see the California Haunts Patreon. That's another place that you can find us. Um, the Patreon is offering something special, and if, if if you like psychic readings, you know you want a psychic reading, and maybe you want to get one not just once, but maybe once a month to get a psychic reading. I swear to God, it's allergies. Everything was fine in the other room and 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 outside. Um, You can do that. For a $5 membership in the Patreon, $5 monthly membership, you get a five-minute reading every month from Nancy Matz or Karen Clark. Now, if you do the $10 level, you could get a 10-minute reading every month from Nancy Matz or Karen Clark. allows you to ask questions and all that stuff during the session as well. And the $15 level, et cetera, et cetera, just like the other levels. Also involved with that is that when I do pre-record most of my shows, those go up two weeks before they hit the main show here. So you will get early bird access to those shows, and that's only for Patreon members. And uh, we're also going to start doing things off the side, like maybe our guest tonight, get him on and maybe do a question and answer with him over at the Patreon site. Right? You guys can join that. Um, Now, when we reach 50 patrons, patrons Patreon. when we reach 50 patrons i'm going to do a big giveaway i've got radio, i got t-shirts I got, I got everything you can think of you know just about anything and i'm going to be giving those away to you know 10 15 people out of that 50 so that's the goal is to hit 50 people and uh you know 50 subscribers over there and what you do is it's kind of cool cuz then you can get a pair a uh, psychic reading every month as long as as long as you remember you will get that psychic reading so I think it's a pretty good deal. So check us out. The link is down there, at the, rolling along the bottom of the screen. And uh, for those of you guys on Radio Land, it's patreon.com forward slash California Haunts Radio. So that's how you can find us. All right. That being said, again, uh, you know, if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube yet, please feel free to do so. We're also on TikTok under California Haunts. We are over on Twitter under California Haunts. And we broadcast as Twitch live on, on California. Calhouns so all right my guest tonight has been on the show before and we were taught and uh, last time he was on we were talking about the ghosts of old Louisville well actually Louis I did it again didn't I old Louisville uh, but tonight we're going to be talking about a murder mystery and I'm gonna let him tell the story and you uh, can take it from there David Dominie is with us and I'm real excited to have him back so let's bring him on in and get this show on the road. Maybe, (laughs) come on, come on, come on! You can do it. All right, how you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Good. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. How've you been? I've been okay. Just real busy. It's that trying to build, trying to build this thing. Yeah, trying to build this thing up. You know what I mean? And then now I'm trying to get my my because it was so hot in my backyard because of that tree that fell. There was no there's no shade. I didn't get a chance to clean my backyard up over Mm -hmm. the summer, so I'm doing it now just in time for Um, winter when I can't go back there naturally, you know? So tell me about you, what's happening with you?
1: Well, it's October. That's kind of the busy season when you're into spooky things, isn't it? Yeah, so Mm -hmm. here in Louisville, um, we're busy giving tours and I've got book signings and uh, fall has arrived here. It's beautiful, the leaves are changing. We get up in the morning, it's uh, usually in the 50s. So it's a, a beautiful time of year to be in Louisville, Kentucky
0: absolutely absolutely yeah I, I, our leaves are changing but not quite like your leaves stuff back, east right, is a, yeah. stuff back east and central is always much better to see you know when yeah. the leaves change there's areas where yeah. there's pockets around here of, of like the, around parks and some neighborhoods <laughs> where you get some really pretty stuff but not, not not like it is with the fire reds and everything you guys get uh-huh. so I, I admire you guys for that
1: yeah we're lucky i guess
0: so uh, this book that you have out
1: uh, about the murder. I assume you're talking about. Darkroom this and is this one that went
0: for that for now. Yeah, see, I got you covered oh. again. Check this out. Check this out. Check this out. Good. There you go. Yeah, yeah Dark room and Glitter Ball city. How did you come up with the idea to write this? And uh, let's yeah.
1: All right. So um, you know already, I uh, I like to write stories that center on Louisville, especially mm-hmm. a neighborhood in our city called Old Louisville. It's one of mm-hmm. the largest historic preservation districts in the country. Uh, what you have in Old Louisville, which is immediately south of the downtown area, you have uh, 45 square blocks of old houses, most of them from the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, there's like 1,400 structures in all. So it's one of the largest historic preservation districts in the country. Uh, since most of the houses are considered Victorian houses, um, some have said it's um, the largest Victorian neighborhood in the country as well. But a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, they, they haven't really heard of Old Louisville. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's kind of been my mission to kind of change that. I moved here in 1993 after spending some time in Santa Barbara where I was uh, getting a degree. Mm-hmm. And I came and I didn't know anything about the city other than, you know, I had heard of uh, the Louisville Slugger and uh, the Kentucky Derby. My plan right. was to do some time at uh, the U of L uh, law school and then get out of town, but that never happened. I ended up loving the city, I loved the old Louisville neighborhood. And uh, I eventually bought a house in that neighborhood. And I lived there for eight years. We talked about this before when I was on, uh-huh. but the previous owner told me the house was haunted and I didn't really think anything of it. I'm kind of a skeptic. I always say when I finally see that ghost, I've been hoping to see
0: that's uh-huh. what will make
1: a true believer. And so I moved into this house and I never saw that ghost, but everything short of seeing an apparition, we experienced. We uh-huh. saw things move on occasion and my cats and dogs acted crazy. Things were falling off the wall, being moved around. And that's when I got to um, meet my fellow homeowners and neighbors, and they all had stories. You know, the typical house in old Louisville is one hundred and thirty years old. So they had stories about ghostly goings on in their houses. Some of them knew about scandals that had taken place on the premises in years past. And so there are there are all these stories, and I started collecting them and writing them down as a way to do my part to. Uh, kind of you know, preserve the legends and lore of what right. many began calling the most haunted neighborhood in the United States. And so I lived in that house until 2008. Um, I was writing my ghost books there. I was also a food writer. I was working on my first cookbook in that house. And when I moved out in 2008, uh, I heard that there was a house right around the corner that had just come on the market. And it kind of interested me because I heard that they had the original wine cellar from when the family built it in 1898. And I thought, well, I'm a food writer. I got to have a wine cellar, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I made an appointment with the real estate agent and I went to uh, look at what they call the Richard Robinson house. Uh, and it was huge. It was built in 1898, had 11 bedrooms. It was uh, over 10,000 square feet. The house I had been in was kind of small by old Louisville standards. It was only about 4,000 square feet, had six bedrooms. But I went and looked at the house and it was just, um, it was too much work. Uh, It needed a lot of renovation. And before I left, I thought, well, I better go look at the wine cellar, you know, just to make sure. And so I went down into this maze-like warren of rooms and finally found the wine cellar tucked away in a corner. It was one of two rooms in the basement that still had a dirt floor. And you could barely tell it was a wine cellar. Um, oh. Previous tenants had thrown in boxes of garbage and stuff. And you could see on the far walls, there, were like a, there was a crisscross pattern where the, the shelves had been. That was really the only hint that there had been a wine cellar there. So uh, when I saw that, I said, yeah, no, it's going to be too much work. No, thanks. And so I left the house as I was going down the front stairs. Um, I ran into a guy who was rushing up the stairs because he had the appointment. But after I did with the agent and I literally ran into him, he kind of bumped into me and I didn't say excuse me or anything like that. And I thought that was kind of uh, rude. But uh, I just shrugged my shoulders and went about with the rest of my day. I didn't think much of it Uh until uh, three years later. So um, it was the morning of June 18th, 2010. I teach at a local university. So I got up and I was getting ready to go teach. I was drinking coffee and uh, watching uh, TV. And all of a sudden, the news flash popped up. And uh, on the screen, they had this big boxy red brick house that all of a sudden looked kind of familiar. And I thought, well, that's got to be down in Old Louisville. That's a typical kind of Old Louisville house, a big Italian house, you know, from the 1890s or thereabouts. And uh, then all of a sudden, a mugshot popped up. And under the photo was the name Jeffrey Munt. And I thought, well, who is that? He looks so familiar. I think I know him. And then that's when it dawned on me, that was the man who had the appointment with the real estate agent that morning after I did, Mm -hmm. and he's the one that bought the house. So that was the Richard Robinson house they were showing on the TV. So in the course of disclosing um, why the police were there, there were police milling about, there was caution tape all around the uh, property. Uh, They let it be known that that night before police Uh, were called to that address, 1435 South 4th Street, because um, one of the people in the house had called 911 asking for the police to come and save them because they said uh, the other's boyfriend was out in the hallway with the hammer trying to break through the wooden door and come inside and murder the other one. That was Jeffrey Munt in the the, uh, bedroom. His boyfriend was a guy named Joseph Bannis, Joey Bannis, and the police responded that night before they found Joey trying to leave the premises and they arrested him. And then as they do, they separated the two parties and tried to get, you know, both sides of uh, events to kind of piece things together. And that's when they began hearing grumblings about somebody knowing something where a dead body was buried. And they didn't really take it seriously at first, but, uh, Joey Bannis kept talking, insisting that he knew where the body of a guy named Jamie Carroll was. He said he was 37 years old. He was from the eastern part of the state. He had been missing for seven months. And he said, people don't even know he's missing yet, but I know that he's dead and I know where his body is. And surprise, surprise, he was high, so he wasn't thinking uh, straight. But he thought if he just told the police where a dead body was, you know, they'd let him go. Well, that's not Mm -hmm. how it works. They had to take him downtown and uh, book him. And in the process, he just kept talking and talking. And so one of the detectives thought they better call around and make sure you know, there was no truth to this story. And uh, they started calling around and they found out, oh, lo and behold, a guy named Jamie Carroll from the Eastern part of the state had been missing for seven months. And all of a sudden, the parts of the story that Joey Bannis told him, they started to fall into place. And after several more hours of interrogation, Joey Bannis finally broke down and told them where the body was and of course, The body was down in the wine cellar. He said Jamie had been killed that previous year, seven months before, and he was buried in the dirt floor of the wine cellar. And he said they had workers scheduled to come over that next day and concrete it all over. So the police came, um, they rushed and got a search warrant to beat the workers. And uh, you can actually see what they found that night, the night of June 17th, 2010, because A&E was in town for a show called The First 48. And uh, they filmed all this. And it's one of uh, five national true crime shows that have done the story of this house and the murder of Jamie Carroll now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The episode is called What Lies Beneath, and they still show it. But uh, they went down, they followed a map Joey had drawn for them, and They ended up in the wine cellar and against the far wall, they could kind of see a rectangular patch that had been dug up and recovered. And they went and they started to dig. Several hours later, once they were four feet into the ground, they unearthed a blue Rubbermaid container in which were the remains of Jamie Carroll. He had been shot and stabbed and they used a sledgehammer to fit his body inside.
0: Wow. So they
1: took Jeffrey Munt down for questioning and um, he insisted, at first, he knew nothing about it. Uh, he was lying. Uh, he did know about it because he helped bury the body. So eventually, the two confessed that they had covered up the crime and they had you know, tried to dispose of the body that way, but they insisted the other had done the actual murder. And uh, so three years later, uh, in 2013, Uh, We had the scandalous uh, set of murder trials that the city saw, the most scandalous they had seen in years. And it was a trial, many called the trial of he said, he said, because they both pointed the finger at each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they both went on trial. The death penalty was dropped uh, in exchange for both of them testifying against the other. So they had separate trials. And the prosecution, uh, a woman named Ryan Conroy, uh, she argued that this terrible murder that took place at 1435 south Fourth street really was the result of the guy's uh, frenzied drug use their dire financial straits their just general depravity and greed Mm -hmm. jeffrey want had been working right down the road at the university of louisville and he was an i.t consultant for them and he was making over a quarter million dollars a year but he started missing work and showing up high And it turns out that Jamie Carroll, among other things, was their drug dealer. And uh, so Jeffrey eventually lost his uh, consulting job, and there was no money coming in to pay the bills. Um, Jamie Carroll, like I said, among other things, was their drug dealer. And the night in question, they say he had arrived in town. He was living and working in Lexington, about 90 minutes away, less than 90 minutes away at the time. And he came to. To Louisville because he had some um, outstanding warrants and he was going to turn himself in the next day and go to jail, kind of do his time, try to come out and be on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. But before he turned himself in, he wanted one last night out on the town and uh, the guys found out he had been involved with them before. And they said, um, bring drugs and come on over to the house on 4th Street and we'll party with you. We'll send you off with a bang. And Jamie came. He had lots of crystal meth and they did drugs and other things all night and then in the wee hours of the morning the prosecution contended that's when the guy saw that jamie had thousands of dollars in cash with him from his previous drug deals that day mm-hmm. and they concocted to kill him keep his drugs and money that would kind of keep them going they could some pay some bills for a couple months and mm-hmm. they knew jamie was going to go to jail the next day they suspected no one would miss him if he just you know disappeared off the face of the earth And the sad thing is, is had the guy shut up about it, they would have gotten away with murder because Mm -hmm. nobody, unfortunately, missed Jamie Carroll. Uh, When he didn't show up to his court date, they dropped the ball. Uh, Normally, you know, someone doesn't show up. You put out a bench warrant or something like that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that. So Jamie fell through the cracks in the system. And his own mother didn't even know he was missing until that night of the 911 call. Mm. So we had um, these, like I said, just sensational trials. Uh, Joey went on trial the end of February, 2013. Uh, Jeffrey followed in May. And at first it seemed like public sentiment kind of came down on the side of Jeffrey Munt. He was this geeky IT guy. He had never had trouble with the law before. He'd never even had like a parking ticket. Uh, Joey, on the other hand, his boyfriend uh, had been to prison numerous times Uh, They flew in witnesses for the trial that testified they had seen uh, Joey chase guys down the sidewalk in broad daylight with hunting knives, threatened to slash them open and gut them like a fish. And uh, Jamie Carroll was attacked with a hunting knife. And so when they saw how volatile Joey Bannis was, no one was really surprised when the verdicts came down. And he was convicted of all but uh, a couple minor counts. And he's in prison today. He got 20 to life. More surprising was when the verdicts for Jeffrey Munt came down. He was acquitted of all but um, two of the minor charges and he got eight years for his part. He was out on parole in 2014 already. The reason I say uh, surprising is because by that point, Jeffrey Munt had been caught in a lot of lies on the stand and people began grumbling saying, "You know, he sounds like he's the mastermind behind this all. He sounds like he's getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. and uh, i tended to agree with that because um i sat through those trials i was there every day and it was fascinating to be in the courtroom and you know see the courtroom drama unfold even today years after the verdicts have come down you know i'm i'm still not sure whether or not the jury got it right you know every time i go back and look at the trial tapes i kind of notice new things and i come to different conclusions so Ask me today what I think. It'll probably be different than if you ask me next week, you know, who's guilty. Uh, Did they do it together like the prosecution argued or was one more culpable than the other? Still not 100 percent certain. But it was fascinating, like I said, to be in the courtroom and see all the drama play out. What was really interesting, though, is after the trials ended, we began to find out more about the, the house itself, where the, the murder of Jamie Carroll took place, 1435 South 4th Street, the Richard Robinson house. Mm-hmm. So we found out already back in the 1920s, they were calling it a haunted house because of uh, you know uh, previous owners dying under mysterious circumstances there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Neighborhood people reported they'd hear screams and groans coming from the house when it was empty. They'd see shadowy forms lurking in the, the windows when um, it was abandoned for a short time. Mm-hmm. And then like any good uh, old Victorian house, you know, at some point in your history, you have to be a sanatorium, right? So in the thirties and forties, there was a sanatorium there, Uh, a guy named Dr. Bandine, Dr. Stanley Bandine was promising to cure people of cancer. And all these people, these poor souls were coming to him in high hopes and in droves, and they weren't being uh, cured. They were dying and suffering under his care. Unfortunately, Dr. Bandine had terrible bedside manner. He kind of liked telling people they were going to die to get a reaction out of them. He was grossly overcharging them, and not surprising, he was brought up on ethics charges in the end, and he was ruined. He was even rumored to have killed his last two patients outright. So from that point forward, the house kind of acquired a sinister reputation. Uh, It seemed like every three or four years, whoever moved into the house, It would claim another victim there'd be there'd be a catastrophic illness someone would die there'd be financial ruin uh, a devastating accident that would claim a victim every three or four years it went on like that until the 1960s that's when a young nurse named Pauline Boren moved in and she kind of broke that curse um, that curse of being a destroyer of lives for almost 30 years until one night uh, she was in the house And the guy she was renting a room to went berserk and savagely beat her so severely she died of her injuries. And for the next 10 years or so, the house sat largely unused, kind of solidifying its reputation as a sinister, a spooky house. Uh, Lots of neighborhood people said you'd hear screams coming from the house and the shadowy forms lurking in the windows. And it went on that way until 2008. That's when Jeffrey Munt bought the property. And then, of course, later, uh, you know, we found out what had gone on there. So, you know, the the murder is sensational in and of itself, but Mm -hmm. it turns out Joey and Jeffrey had a lot more going on in that basement than just uh, a murder they were trying to cover up. We found out that uh, in the 80s for a time, the person who was renting a room there had uh, started a little S&M club in the basement in that corner where the um, where the wine cellar was. And supposedly, and I haven't been able to confirm this because they, they won't talk to me, but supposedly mm-hmm. uh, Jeffrey Munt had a little s and club going on down there. He was trying to revive the s and club days. Um, and they had had some parties there. And Jeffrey Munt liked to wear full body black rubber suits. When the picture of him and his rubber suits hit the news, that's when people noticed some similarities with the show that had just started airing and that was the first season of American Horror Story. Yep, I was just thinking of that. Murder House, all of a sudden they noticed these strange similarities between the two stories and they started calling it Kentucky's American Horror Story House, Mm -hmm. uh, because that was in its first um, season. Some I've, I've heard and read have said this was the inspiration for American Horror Story. That's not true as far as I know. As far as I understand, American Horror Story was already Uh, showing, several episodes had shown before this murder made the news in 2010. So some have said this was the inspiration. Uh, If so, I don't know where the connection came from. They would have had to kind of be psychic to get the inspiration before, you know, Uh uh, murder was even uncovered. But uh, so there's that element that's kind of uh, interesting. Jamie Carroll, the guy's drug dealer, was also their uh, sometimes boyfriend. Uh, The night he had come over that last night of his life, uh, the three of them were in bed having sex together. And it was during a break that whoever you believe, uh, Joey left the bed. And when he turned around, Jeffrey was attacking and stabbing Jamie. Or if you believe Jeffrey, he got off the bed and he turned around and saw that Joey had attacked uh, Jamie and was killing him. So there's that element. He was their extra boyfriend sometimes. He was their drug dealer. Uh, Jamie Carroll also was a well-known drag queen. When he wasn't Jamie Carroll, he was Veronica Reed, the pageant queen. He was Pride, West Virginia, just the year before he was murdered. Now I say, you know, throw a drag queen in, it's going to make things a lot more fun. So mm-hmm. um, there's just all these bizarre elements um, to the story. And the icing on the cake is, is Joey and Jeffrey also were counterfeiters. On the second floor, they had an operation where they had been Taking dollar bills, they were bleaching them with chemicals, and then they were restamping the the empty papers as higher denominations—fifty and hundred dollar bills. Wow! In April, 2010. So this would have been while Jamie Carroll's body was in the ground in the in the wine cellar in Jeffrey Munt's basement. Uh, Oe and Jeffrey went up to Chicago. They checked into the Hyatt Regency for what I assume was going to be like a test run weekend. They wanted to see how good they were at counterfeiting how much fake money they could pass. Uh And evidently they weren't very good because they didn't even make it out of the hotel before they were arrested. Uh, Jeffrey had given uh, the doorman a fake hundred dollar bill. He knew right away. He said it was kind of slightly damp, it didn't feel right. He called the police and the police arrived. They raided their room and in it, they $54,000 in counterfeit money. In addition to bags and bags of date break drugs, bomb making supplies, guns, forged documents and fake IDs, they were planning a bank heist while they were up in Chicago because Joey had done time up there. He had connections to uh, organized crime in Chicago and he was going to, I guess, going to kill like two birds with one stone. He had robbed a bank in already. Mm -hmm. And so um, when the murder was uncovered, Joey and Jeffrey were out on bail for this big federal trial there was supposed to be this big federal trial for the counterfeit money that never took place as far as we can tell and mm-hmm. uh, one of the interesting things that came up in the trials is one of the reasons that uh, uh joey said he was terrified of jeffrey and hadn't gone to the police about this that was both of their defenses as to why they hadn't really come forward and you know ratted the other out. they both claimed to have been mm-hmm. in uh, living in terror of the other but uh, Joey said he was terrified of Jeffrey because he had worked for the CIA as an assassin and killed like 33 people for them. And when that came out, people just kind of rolled their eyes and stuff. Uh, Jeffrey Munz, kind of this milquetoast, this uh, geeky IT kind of guy, doesn't really fit that image. But uh, people I've talked to in the CIA say, well, we're not going to pick people, you know, that fit the image. And so that was kind of funny. But um, we found out Jeffrey is an expert in um, Eastern Europe uh eastern european politics and language speaks several languages including uh german and russian all these little things came out after the fact that kind of make people wonder if uh maybe jeffrey didn't have some connection with the cia or some kind of government uh, agency and um that's kind of where we stand right now um no one's quite sure what happened with jeffrey munt he kind of disappeared um after he was released he went into a halfway house for a year and then uh, his trail goes cold. I've talked to people who are his friends. They um, they've said several different things. Some said he went to Europe and changed his name. He's living under an assumed identity. Other people say he's living in Baltimore. Some people say he bought a house uh, in the Midwest and he's going to uh, restore it and kind of do the same thing he did with the house that he owned on Fourth Street in Louisville. So um, not quite sure what's going on from that end, but. Uh, Uh, the story is an interesting one and uh, the paperback of my book just came out. So it's going on two years that the uh, book has been out and uh, still going strong. And uh, the good thing is I'm hearing from people all over the country who are reading the book and it makes them want to come to Louisville, Kentucky, which is kind of one of my, um, my incentives for writing the book. I like to tell people what an interesting town Louisville, Kentucky is. It's kind of quirky um, city, and uh, they really embraced the Keep Louisville uh, weird movement. So oh. I include lots of historical tidbits and just little random bits of information. Uh, people who read the book, uh, some reviewers, in fact, have commented that uh, there's comparisons with this and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, the Savannah story oh. written by John Barrent. And I don't shy away from that. I've always been an admirer of his. And uh, this book was inspired by Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. But um, Louisville is where in 1893, sisters Patty and Mildred Hill uh, wrote the Happy Birthday song. So we're the birthplace of the Happy Birthday song, the most sung song in the world. It's also the place where in the 1970s, at the height of the world's disco craze, all the disco balls, for the most part, were being made. Uh, A company named Omega National Products had a crew of 25 women who would crank out disco balls by hand every day. Uh, They usually made like around 20 a day. Of those, there's uh, only one left. Her name's Yolanda Baker, kind of known as the reigning queen of disco balls. She doesn't make as many as she used to. She says if she makes uh, maybe a disco ball a day now, that's kind of a lot. Because by the 90s, China had overtaken Louisville with mass production. So today, the, the bulk of the world's disco balls don't come from Louisville anymore. But The iconic ones, the best quality ones, they say do. And probably all the ones you've ever seen on TV and in the movies, like John Travolta dancing in Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. That was a Louisville disco ball. If any people are old enough to remember Soul Train with Don Cornelius. That huge Mm -hmm. one was probably their most famous one back in the day. It's what they had at Studio 54 in New York City. And it's not Mm -hmm. surprising that uh, Louisville should have this legacy of making disco balls because it was a Kentuckian in 1917 already who first patented something called the Myriad Reflector. So they've been making them over a hundred years here in this area now. So, uh, early it was called a Myriad Reflector. Most of us know it as a, a disco ball. Omega, uh, officially they call it a mirror ball, but, uh, locally they call it a glitter ball very often. And that's the, that's the term I'm trying to promulgate. So, uh, glitter ball city. So it's one of the uh, many interesting things that makes this um, that makes this city Louisville unique. And if you read my book, you kind of see I love the city and all its eccentricities and things like that. And right. uh, yeah, if you're ever, ever in town, come and check us out. We give tours of the neighborhood. We have a special Glitter Ball City tour where I take groups around and we go be scenes, talk about uh, some of the places in the book and the backstories, things like that. It's been really great. We've been seeing a, an uptick in visitors to Old Louisville because of the book.
0: That sounds that sounds wonderful. I would love to go personally. I really would. Okay, um, yeah, uh, yep. yeah, swinging back to the yeah, swinging back to the murder. Now these guys uh, obviously bought. Or the, 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 the one gentleman bought the house after you. Yeah, after you were looking at it. Did these were these guys seen around town shopping and stuff like like you know just normal?
1: Yeah, they. I, I had run into them before. Joey Jeffrey's boyfriend. So what happened is. Uh, Jeffrey moved here from Chicago. He had worked as a, a kind of a consultant. He had a good position for a project at Northwestern in uh, Chicago. He supposedly left uh, town because uh, his then boyfriend had broken up with him. Uh, since then, sources have disputed that. They said he left town because he made a power grab uh, at the job he had, and he was rebuffed and left town with his tail between between his legs whatever reason he ended up back in Louisville where he was raised he bought the house on 4th Street for $335,000 and he had planned on turning it into a bed and breakfast and not too long after he moved in that's when he met uh Joey Bannis uh Joey Joseph Bannis he is from a very pro- well a re- relatively prominent family in town you could say his father's a well-known uh, plastic surgeon and uh um, Jeff uh, Joey, unfortunately, was like the black sheep of his family. He had had drug issues and he had been to prison. That didn't bother Jeffrey. The two met and uh, they hit it off. Supposedly they met on a Halloween night and uh, hit it off. And within a couple of weeks, Joey had moved himself into the house on 4th Street. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the neighbors didn't really know much about it. They saw them come and go every now and then they just thought it was two guys going to live together, fixing up an old house. Many didn't Uh even know the place was occupied because it was in such bad shape. But uh, Joey was also a a well-known bartender at one of the uh, local clubs in town, Starbase Q. And he often had uh, his hair done up in a blue mohawk. He'd be painted with phosphorescent body paints, um, tattoos and things like that. So he uh, kind of was well known in the scene. Jeffrey uh, was kind of seen as an odd bird. He uh, people often claimed he affected an English accent. If you saw him, he'd say "cheerio" and "top of the morning" to you. Uh, he he seemed a little presumptuous, presumptuous to some people. But um, they were known in the scene. People had had seen them out and stuff. And the thing is, they were both from relatively speaking privileged backgrounds. You know, they did have. Uh, bad, uh, home lives. They grew up, um, in two parent households. They had a very comfortable existence. Um, J- Jeffrey did especially well in school. He got a scholarship, went to, uh, IU Bloomington and did well. Uh, he was very successful upon graduating. Joey, on the other hand, he had a hard time. He flitted from job to job and did, uh, was a deadhead for a while and, uh, was selling drugs, and he seemed to always be getting into trouble, and uh, his uh, family was always having to kind of help him uh, out when he got out of prison. But uh, Uh yeah, they both had uh, upbringings that you wouldn't think would lead to kind of, uh, you know, terrible crime like this.
0: Uh Now, after you seeing the house and knowing the layout of the house, especially the basement area, did it surprise you at all where they ended up finding the body?
1: Well, at first, yeah, I was like, you know, you just think wine cellar. Why would you bury a body down there? Then I right. remember the dirt floor. And later, when the details of the night James Carroll was murdered came out, um, then it kind of made sense. You know, they had to get rid of the body, you know, right. and it's like they had a place to bury them right below them. You know, it's just, it just made perfect sense. That would be a place you might uh, dispose of the body, and especially since they were planning on concrete at all, concreting it all over after the fact, it would have uh-huh. been the perfect
0: spot to dispose of a body. And I would think because it being like so far in the ground, you know, underground, because, you know, like like, like we had Dorothea D- D- Puente here, for instance, on, on our uh, house up here where she killed like two or three of her, her um, pe- pe- people, She was you know, roommates in her house essentially that were paying her rent. But what got people was the smell. You know, where people would smell odd smells, and she was forever using stuff to cover up that smell. But you you would think there might be a smell, but there might not, on the other hand, because it was so far, you know, under the house, right? I mean.
1: Yeah, there there was four feet of dirt on top of Jamie. In addition, they buried him in the Rubbermaid tote. They poured, Mm -hmm. before they sealed it with foam and sealing tape, they poured in lye. So, I mean. It wasn't until they were lifting out the, the Rubbermaid container that one of the detectives kind of jostled the top and it came loose. He said that was the first time you could smell death. Holy premeditated
0: Batman. Talk about being premeditated.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that was not a spur of the moment thing. You know, you kill somebody and, oh, my God, you know, where are we going to bury him? Where, you know, where, where are we going to put him? I mean, this, this took some thought.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, like I said, I'm not quite sure what happened that night, but it seems uh-huh. like there was some discussion. Before he left for a time. He went back to his hotel where he was staying to get more uh-huh. drugs. And during that time, that's supposedly where whoever you believe, Jeffrey or Joey, floated the idea of killing him and right. keeping his money. And then when he came back, that's when the plan was executed, whether or not you believe they did it together or one of them kind of well, took the uh-huh. incentive. But uh-huh. um, they didn't have any of the stuff they needed. So after after Jamie was killed, that's when they went and got the Rubbermaid container and wow. the lie and the, the tape and foam and stuff like that. And it's when they stupidly, you know, rigor mortis had set in. If they had just waited for that to pass, they wouldn't have had to use right. a sledgehammer to break his bones to fit him inside that container. Um, so yeah, during that time, that's when they went and got the stuff. And supposedly um, then for like the next day or so, they spent all that time digging uh, that grave. It took hours and hours and hours to dig the grave.
0: Man. Well, it's it's a truly incredible story. I've been around, you know, as Mm -hmm. a crime court reporter working in Yellow County, I've heard some doozies too. And this is a doozy. And what this reminds me of, there was this, uh, young man who, was, who I think he was in college and he met up with his ex-girlfriend. He was Asian and he didn't kill her, but he stabbed her like 12 times. Mm-hmm. And then he went out to Rite Aid or someplace and bought bandages for her oh. and bought her food.
1: How nice of him.
0: Yeah. And then he thought that he was going to get away with it because she um, dropped him off at the airport to fly back to Los, A- you know, to Los Angeles And her sister picked her up, and her sister asked her why she, you know, she was moving slow. And this is when she told the sister what happened. Uh, So they went and picked him up. What a sweetheart, though. And this is what this reminds me of. The way you were talking, they didn't have the stuff, so they went and went to the store, you know, to to get all this stuff to take care of him. Wow. (coughs) So, uh, uh, as you sorted through this stuff, how hard was it to get through it? You did go to court, but were you able to access the records?
1: Yeah. Uh, half the time I went to the judicial center where the records were kept,
0: uh-huh.
1: they were mysteriously gone. Um, some things I was looking for, I I wasn't able to find at all. Um, but um, in Kentucky, all the trials are videotaped, so right. it was good to have that as a resource. Um, the book took me over it took me 10 years to write the book and get it out and a good portion of that was watching the trial tapes going back transcribing you know some of the courtroom uh, right. dialogue, recreating the courtroom drama and things like that so um there was a lot of information you know the police reports and stuff available but um one of the things that i think accounted for me taking so long to finish the book was that joey and jeffrey went talk to me I got into my head, you know, I couldn't really write this book or at least finish it until both of the accused killers talked to me and shared their side of the story. You know, I needed to get that before I could really objectively write this story. But about seven years in, I realized they weren't going to talk to me. I reached out through their lawyers and Mm -hmm. sent them registered certified letters, emails, reached out through their social media pages and things like that. And uh, just never got any response. Uh, I did finally, as the book was going to print, I got a brief um, email message from Joey in his prison. And he wanted to talk to me. But then at the last minute, he changed his mind. So I never was able to talk to him. But we did have some email correspondence. And it was enough for me to pick up that he has a very intense vibe. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, people said he's able to kind of lure you in. He's got this Bengali-like um talent he can mesmerize people and Mm -hmm. i didn't have a lot of contact with him but from the little contact i had i could kind of see where that might be true Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. but yeah that's that's it
0: now the people of louisville because like you say it's a small well tight-knit community what was their reactions to all this
1: well so where this happened the neighborhood old louisville it's often considered like the redheaded stepchild of the city. It was like the wealthy uh-huh. place where people lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was like a wealthy suburb. But uh-huh. by the time World War I had rolled around, the neighbors started to go and decline, like a lot of places across the country uh-huh. after World War II. Then they started moving out to the suburbs. So by the 1970s, it was kind of a rundown, seedy kind of place. And this was happening all over the United States as well. And um, there's been a lot of good things happening in Old Louisville. People are moving in from all over. They're buying the houses, fixing them up. This it's going to be the new Savannah, the new Charleston. And mm-hmm. um, so it's a great place to live. But if you're an old time Louisvilleian, a lot of them, they still kind of think of it as a bad part of town. So the city, um, the neighborhood, I should say, has always kind of had to deal with this stigma, how they're viewed by mm-hmm. other parts of the city. And when this happened, a lot of, uh, lot of old-timers just kind of rolled their eyes and like, oh, typical old Louisville. And there's a, a sizable uh-huh. gay population in old Louisville. And the fact that it was two accused killers that were gay, the victim was gay, um, uh-huh. there was some homophobia that reared its ugly head and things like that. So people sensationalized the gay aspect of it. Um, but, yeah, there was a whole lot more to, to the, the trial than just that. Uh, When all the details started to emerge, it was just kind of a a story people couldn't believe.
0: And what happened to the house? Is there somebody living in there or does it just a place where people just go to look through the windows, (laughs) you know, stuff like that? Uh, People might
1: go look through the windows, but it's popular stop on our evening ghost tour. But um, after the trials ended, uh, a local couple bought it and they restored it. And actually right after Jeffrey's trial ended, they had an open house. They invited the whole neighborhood to come inside and look at the place. I think it was kind of like, you know, come and look and get it out of your system, you know, before we sell it or whatever. And half the neighborhood showed up. And of course, the first thing they said when they walked inside was like, where's the basement? Everyone beelined down to the basement to to see the place where Jamie had been killed. That became the laundry room in the house. They, they, um, They concreted it over. And that is where uh, they did their laundry and for a number of years they would rent it out to graduate students at the University of Louisville. So hmm. it was set up like a single family house, but kind of more like a sorority. It's like each girl had her room upstairs on the second mm-hmm. and third floor. And then downstairs, the kitchen, dining room, study, you know, those rooms they use as kind of shared common rooms. But um, every year it seemed like a new batch of students would come and go. And I talked to some of them. They said the house was dead. Nothing, scary ever happened in the house. They had nothing of a paranormal nature happen in the house. But this January, um, the batch of students that was there, they just up and left, they broke the lease. And um, they wouldn't tell anyone what had happened, but some people suspect something happened because they broke the lease and left. And uh, for a couple of months, the house was on the market, rented on Zillow. And finally they rented it out to um, just a bunch of regular students, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh today it's it's occupied and um it's it's still in good shape. Uh if they ever sell it as a single family house, it'll it's a beautiful house.
0: You know, I would think, you know, as a ghost hunter all these years and if you know, seeing how things work, I would think that maybe those particular students, somebody in there was sensitive or, or something that 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 would bring that energy out.
1: Yeah, you would think, but none of the ones I, I, I talked to said that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that happened was as the house was being restored, the owners let two different groups go in, two church groups go in to kind of bless the house and cleanse it. Mm-hmm. And at one time, they were going from room to room They were because every room had like a fireplace in it. They had taken mm-hmm. all the fireplace mantles off the walls. And uh, one of the groups that went in to bless the house, they scrawled Bible verses on the back of the fireplace mantles before they put them back on the wall and one of my paranormal friends was telling me about this they said well either that'll take care of it or just make it mad so i don't know mm-hmm. if they should expect to see something uh, mm-hmm. eventually or not but the last i heard nothing of a paranormal nature happened in the house since then
0: now do you think and this is something we always talk about as paranormal investigators especially lately that people can create their own ghosts
1: Whatever you want to define ghosts as, you know, mm-hmm. yes, I definitely think, you know, like a tulpa or something, you can you can kind of create a phenomena around something, and that could lead to what some call a haunting.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know there's a restaurant up here in Auburn that people were doing that in. In the, 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 the fact, there was never a ghost in this place at all, according to the owners. Mm-hmm. But once people started coming in, and he kind of, he I think he kind of spread the rumor a little bit to draw more people into the restaurant. You know, that it was haunted Oh yeah but now but but now it there's a lot of activity there but it's but this ghost is like like an imprint from people's brains when they go in mm-hmm. you know, for, for the lions it's yeah, interesting oh,
1: yeah definitely have heard of that happening and might be guilty of that myself because i write <laughs> a lot about this neighborhood and um a lot of my information is like cobbled together from different accounts and mm-hmm, bits of mm-hmm. information and um i have people come to me and they you know because the, the fame of the neighborhood as being America's most haunted neighborhood is kind of spreading. So I have people coming to me. They're like, can you help us find a ghost in our house? You know, they haven't had anything, but they kind of see it as a badge of honor and uh, a ghost story is a way to kind of delve into the past of the house. And uh, often, you know, you find strange occurrences associated with the house, especially uh, uh-huh. one that's been around a long time. Uh-huh. So yeah, I can definitely see, see that happening.
0: I find that, I find that interesting, you know, that, that people want that because it used to be people didn't want to talk about that stuff. And mm-hmm. now they really want to talk about it. And, and, and it's hip to have a ghost around you. you know? Yeah.
1: When I first started writing my books, my first collection of ghost stories from the neighborhood came out in 2005. And uh, we had like a dozen or so bed and breakfasts in the neighborhood. And um, some of them had ghost stories associated with their places. Some of them had mm-hmm. guests that had been in touch with me. And, uh, some of the bed and breakfasts are like, oh, don't write about us. We're afraid it'll scare guests away. Well, what they quickly found out is it's the opposite. You know, if you're a bed and breakfast and you have a reputation for being haunted, you have a haunted room you can rent out, you're going to mm-hmm. get 10 times as many people wanting to stay there. So now it's the other way around. I have the bed and breakfast coming to me saying, can you help us, you know, uh, spread the story of our ghost in the bed and breakfast and things like that?
0: <laughs> yeah. I can, I can definitely see. That. I can definitely see that. Now, what makes me, what interests me too, is the fact that, that the those people when they moved in. No, oh, I don't believe in that stuff. We're just going to go ahead and deliberately, you know, put stuff down in that basement area for laundry. But you know, like, like, uh, like the saying goes, uh, nothing happened to them. But the next person coming in after they stir it up might experience something.
1: Might, yeah. Who uh-huh. knows?
0: Uh-huh. Do you think there's ever going to be a truth to come out about that murder at all?
1: If I can ever talk to Joey or Jeffrey and kind of discern who's telling the truth, you know, mm-hmm. the big question is to this day, you know, what caused that fight the, the night of the 911 call? Why was Joey attempting to kill Jeffrey? Is it because Jeffrey broke and said he was going to go to the police and tell him about the body mm-hmm. being there? That seems to be um, what might have been, you know, the motivation But we're Uh not sure. And then to this day, you know, did Joey kill Jamie on his own? Did Jeffrey do it or did they both conspire to do it? It's just those are the questions that are still unanswered. And uh, from the information I've been giving and sifted through, I just can't I can't come to a conclusion one way or the other.
0: The other question that comes to mind is when when they initially killed him, where where was he? Was he upstairs or did they lure him down the basement to do it?
1: Nope, they were in uh, the main bedroom on the second floor, and okay. all three of them had been on the bed. Uh-huh. And depending on who you believe, oh, on, that's, that's like, right, that's it, right. I'm
0: sorry, I just I forgot. Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. Jeffrey left the bed, and when he turned around, it was jo- Joey attack, attacking Jamie, or the other way around. Right, right, right. I'm Joey, sorry, you did. When he turned around, it was Jeffrey attacking
0: Jamie. Yeah, so it's whoever you believe. Yeah, you did say that. I'm sorry. Yeah. See, that's yeah. what makes you wonder because at that point. I don't know if you've ever had had to carry dead weight, you know, or anything like that, but even even your dog weighs three times as heavy as it was after it passes yeah. away. So he would you know, whoever did this would, would have needed the other to help take it down, you know, take him down the basement.
1: Yeah. Um, and so they supposedly wrapped Jamie in a bloody sheet and uh-huh. kind of dragged him down that way. Um, and once again, it depends on whose version you believe, Joey mm-hmm. said after he killed Jamie, kind of execution style, mm-hmm. shooting him in the head, he immediately kind of went into spy mode, Joey said, and pulled out the SIM cards from the computers and the or the telephones and uh, the hard drives from the computers, uh, pointed a gun at Joey and kind of kicked into action, said, get down there and start digging, you know, and. Uh, Joey said it was like Jeffrey had done this before.
0: Mhm well, maybe he has, and nobody knows.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: what is the attitude you know in that in that area about this that there's got to be attitudes from people about you know what they think so so what's the majority what does the majority of the people think about this?
1: From the feedback I've received through different channels, a lot of people think they both were equally guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people think that Jeffrey Munt got off easy, mm-hmm. you know, getting only, you know, serving four years and that's it. They think he, he did get away with murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy in Chicago, um, Chuck Gowdy on Chicago's ABC affiliate, he did a story about it called, mm-hmm. you know, getting away with murder. So a lot of people think Jeffrey Munt did get away with murder. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. But I kind of agree you know I hate this whole accessory to murder thing. You know that that, that they do in the courts because if you knowingly, you know, if, if you see someone kill somebody else and then you knowingly help them move the body and, and dispose of the body, you're just as guilty as they are. Yeah. Yeah. And as as you said, you were very fortunate because you could watch the video of the hearings. And that, that, that's a huge plus, too, during court hearing, because I remember sitting for hours in, in courtrooms and listening to the testimony and all that. And you can't record it. You have to write it down. you know It mm-hmm. has to be physically written down. And it does get trying sometimes, especially when they don't talk as loud as they should. So you, you were very fortunate in that. Is there anything in particular, you know, when they were on the stand, as far as their, their body you know movements or mannerisms or whatever, that stood out to you?
1: Yeah, a couple th- things. Um, And going back to what you just uh, said, commented on Mm -hmm. about like the taking notes and stuff, which is a tedious Mm -hmm. uh, process. What's Mm -hmm. good about the taped, the videotape trials in Kentucky is that after the trial, they become public record. And when you go back and watch those, you you could see all the other things that the public didn't get to see during the trial. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. you get to see the voir dire, you get to see the jury selection as they're as they're polling each potential jury, trying to whittle mm-hmm. them down and come up with a, a jury that both sides approve of. Anytime you're in a courtroom and the judge hits that button and white noise fills the courtroom when he calls both sides you know, to the bench and discusses something with them, you get to hear all that stuff uh, mm-hmm. when you get the trials after the fact. So uh, that really opened up Um, a lot of interesting venues. For example, you could see all the homophobia at play when the jurors were being uh, uphold and things like that. But as far as Jeffrey and um, Joey's kind of demeanor in the courtroom goes, the first thing that struck me was Joey Bannis was always very articulate. He was even keeled, well-spoken. He never changed his story. So when I went to the first trial, Um, A lot of us went in thinking that Joey was the more culpable of the two and that Jeffrey had kind of been swept up, you know, Uh as an innocent bystander. But after seeing Joey on the stand, hearing his version of events, seeing how he never changed his story, um, I and other people left that courtroom after Joey's trial, convinced that he wasn't as guilty as Jeffrey was. I thought he might actually be acquitted. Uh, since then I have been made privy to other things like how he acts when he's not in the courtroom. And, uh-huh. uh, in the second trial, a lot of information came out, like how he had been, uh, surveilling Jeffrey. He had a tracker on Jeffrey's car, was monitoring his movements and the, uh, the defense attorneys for Jeffrey Munt produced evidence that he had, uh, picked Jeffrey as a mark after just getting out of prison and he, he needed someone to kind of take advantage of and manipulate. Mm -hmm. And there were like lists that Joey had come up with. And then all the other things that Joey had done and said that kind of um, skewered that view of him being a little more innocent at first, but Mm -hmm. uh, about Jeffrey, he on the stand, it just seemed like he seemed so forced just from the, minute he opened his mouth, I didn't find him credible. Maybe mm-hmm. because he was trying to sound too serious. He mm-hmm. he was maybe trying to deepen his voice and sound more authoritative. I don't know, but there was just something about his demeanor that I found grating. And it was hard to believe Jeffrey Munt. And there were things where he got caught in lies. It was easy to prove. Um, and Jeffrey... He has a reputation for thinking he's smarter than everyone else. And you could see that the way he kind of manipulated the conversation between him and uh, the defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. Uh, He tried to editorialize and kind of get in extra information to kind of uh, maybe sway the jury and stuff. So those would be two things I think that stood out right away. Jeffrey's demeanor not coming across as very credible. Right. Uh, Joey coming across as very credible, even though he might not have been very credible.
0: Right, right. Do you think that maybe they should have been tried together, or, or do you think it was better that they were tried separately?
1: Well, I think for the prosecution, that was the best bet because they really needed the one to testify against the other. If they didn't, they really wouldn't have had much mm-hmm. of a case, you know, mm-hmm. it would have been circumstantial evidence, you know, to a large part um but the fact that they ended up trying them separately might have been to the detriment of the prosecution because what we noticed is when the second trial started the prosecution still kind of put on the same argument and it's to me it seemed like they didn't put in a lot, any extra work they were just presenting the exact same things that they had used the first time Mm-hmm. not paying attention to new information that had surfaced, you know, um, they should have, I think, tailored their approach a little more on the second trial with Jeffrey Munn. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was two totally different trials. I, I'll i try not to uh, second guess a jury again, but right, right. Um, when I saw these trials and I saw how different each one was and what information was allowed and wasn't allowed, um you it's understandable how how some juries will come to the 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 verdicts they do just based on the information
0: that they're presented with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was another question i have as you talked about the recordings was it hard for them to to find a jury or or did it take a long time you know fairly long time to find a jury because like you say you know homophobia came into play in all this
1: yeah they um I think both for both trials, they had like a jury pool of almost like 200 people Uh and they had to whittle it down. Um, I think they got away about halfway through before they finally got like 15 jurors that they could both sides could agree on. Uh After um, the first trial, though, they learned to streamline the voidir, the the jury polling, quite a bit Uh because in the first trial, the judge asked every potential juror, you know, uh, this is a, a trial that involves two uh, accused gay killers. The victim is gay. Do you have anything against gay people? You know, he came out and said it like that. Oh. When it came to the second round of um, jurors for the the Munt trial, they had been able to pull them in writing and they were able to weed out a lot of those people just in, in written questions. And then when they Pulled them face to face, they were able to get to the crux of the matter for each one. So the second uh, trial, it seemed to be a much more streamlined version.
0: It's interesting. Yeah. I've, I've sat in on those, you know, those uh, jury duty things and, you know, just the questions that one lawyer asks. You get through, you think, okay, I'm on the jury, you know, I should do fine. The other lawyer comes in, and the next thing you know, they're picking all this, you know, all this stuff to make it as yeah. fair as possible. Yeah. Are you going to be looking more at, or is, is this it for you as far as this book, you know, as far as looking for more information, or are you still gathering for a part two? Well,
1: people ask, when's the sequel going to be? That's right. Like, what are the chances of, you know, me buying another house, and two years later, three years later, someone gets arrested there, and a the body was buried there, and mm-hmm. there was an s m club there, and they were counterfeiting money, and other people <laughs> had been killed, and the, it was haunted, and there was a sanatorium. Probably never, but some... Uh, some in other stories have surfaced. Some other true crime stories have surfaced in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. So I might be able, you know, I might be able to whip up something, but I'm, um, I'm switching over to fiction. now. I've got some novels in the works. So hopefully mm-hmm. my next uh, publications will be novels. And then, you know, I still love true crime. So I'll probably uh-huh. come back to true crime in some form or other, whether or not this story resurfaces, I'm not quite sure, but from the neighborhood, I'm sure there'll be something.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's always fun to have you on the, this hour blue pie. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I I love hearing you talk about this book. I I really do because I mean, I'm into, I hate to say I'm into that, but I I was a a crime court reporter for five, five Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. you know That's what I did for a living. So. Yeah. Thanks for giving
1: me the chance to, to talk more about the book story and you know, um, I hope when people read the book, they understand that Jamie Carroll was an innocent victim, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, as is often the case, there was a lot of victim shaming and things. And so I tried to paint him as humanely as possible. He was a flawed individual like all of us are, Um, Mm -hmm. but that is often sad in these situations where the victim kind of gets swept under the rug and people forget the humanity. And that's one of the things I try to do with this book is to show that Jamie, Carol was a human being and his death affected a lot of people. He had a lot of people that were devastated by his death.
0: Well, all three of these guys yeah. weren't angels, but it's yeah. always sad when, when when somebody ends up being killed or, or they die for whatever reason, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's always sad. Yep. What's next for you then? Because we were just kind of talking about this book and and, and stuff you have in the hopper.
1: Uh, like I said, I'm working on some fiction, uh, mm-hmm that takes place in Louisville. That's about it. It's, it's busy tour season around here. I've got lots of book signings. So I just need to get through October 1st, and then uh, when the weather cools down, things kind of slow down a bit, so I'll get to work on some, some of these projects. But yeah, for the time being, I just need to make it through Halloween.
0: Absolutely. Is there a website people can find you at?
1: Yeah, daviddomine.com, And uh, if you want to find out more about the tours we offer in the neighborhood, louisvillehistorictours.com.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, David, for coming. We'd love to have you on another time.
1: All right. That's sounds okay. good. We'll talk right. next
0: time. Okay. See you later, Thank David. You. Have a great rest you. your evening. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah. It's always great to have him on. His ghost stories are terrific about that area. And that's like he says, that's what we spoke about the last time. And this time was the book. Okay. Tomorrow is a unique situation. I know you guys know there's no uh, show listed for the however. There will be a show. It's going to be a quick turnaround. I'm doing the interview at 10 a.m. Pacific. And then by 2 p.m., I will have all the information for you guys like I normally do on Facebook and over at, uh, you know, over at the meetup and all that stuff. And over on Instagram and all those places. Instagram. Instagram. My God, I must be tired. Instagram. And like I said, my guest tomorrow is – oh, ma'am. David Serrata, sorry about that, David B. Serrata, I've got a throat thing going on, and he's going to be talking about the algorithms of UFOs, and he's also going to be talking about UFOs and how they correspond to certain historical events, you know, is there a connection with this, with those historical events. So that's going to be tomorrow, usual time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, over on YouTube, because uh, I'll have everything uploaded and taken care of by by 2 p.m. Pacific, so it'll be ready for you guys at 6.30 tomorrow. But uh, yeah, that's what's going on tomorrow. That's why there's nothing, because right now I can't even put a teaser out for it because there's no link to the show yet. So that'll all come between 11 and noon tomorrow, Pacific time. So yeah, thank you guys very much for coming today. I appreciate it for for the ones that did make it at 5 and for the rest of you that are now watching at the usual time. Thank you. I want to thank you all for Watching us and following us and we got big things coming new things coming and I'm real excited about that I even have a book. I'm writing and I'm halfway through that. So Yep, yeah, things just keep moving right along. All right. Well, I'll, if you like the show share it with five people if you hate the show Share it with five of your enemies That's sequel opportunity here. We're just trying to build up to that big thousand mark on YouTube I've got 240 more to subscribers to go for YouTube to hit that thousand mark so I'm on this. It's almost like a big push right now, but I'm hoping to do that by Christmas. It'll be a great Christmas gift to start out the new year like that, and uh, keep the show going. Keep the show going, and be sure to check out the Patreon, uh, the page Patreon, I can see Patreon the, the, the Patreon, and uh, see what we have to offer over there because there's a bunch of stuff that's going to be going on. I'm even going to be doing some oracle card readings over on the Patreon as well as on TikTok. So if you if you find if you're on TikTok, and you find us on TikTok under California Haunts. Come on over and. And and sign up over there, too. We do have a subscription over there. You guys, you don't answer, you ready for this. The Boo Crew. All right. So, anyway, thank you guys very much. I'm going to show you his book one more time. And then we're going to sign this thing off. Here we go. The book is A Dark Room in the Glitter Ball City. And that can be purchased at Amazon. Alrighty, righty, that's it for me, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Um, I'll be in the chat room. I won't be live, obviously, but I'll see you guys tomorrow at YouTube, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, with David B. Cerrito. Thank you very much, and have a great evening.